Alex Gutentag for Public, and today Michael Schellenberger and I are joined by Alina Chan and Matt Ridley. Alina is a molecular biologist and a postdoctoral fellow at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and Matt is a biologist, former member of the UK House of Lords, and science writer whose books have sold over a million copies in 32 languages. Today, we discuss the book that Matt and Alina wrote together called Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, as well as recent developments in the COVID origins debate. Here's our conversation. I think most of our listeners are familiar that they know there's a debate about whether or not the origins of COVID are from a lab or from nature. I wonder if you guys could just, we could begin by you guys explaining how this, how much this debate has changed over the last two years and where you think the debate is at right now. So the debate started almost as soon as people heard about this virus spreading in Wuhan because the, the news got out that there is a lab there specializing in exactly the type of virus that was causing that kind of outbreak. So back in early 2020, uh, I'd say the public debate was quickly controlled and, and uh, the lab origin, the lab leak theory was cast as a conspiracy, like anti-science, racist, like right-wing conspiracy. But that has changed over the last three years. So it's completely changed now. Now, most scientists will, will acknowledge that it's on the table and it needs to be investigated. Uh, the debate now is whether, how, how likely it is. So, so how likely is it on the scale of like 100% or is it like, you know, 1% chance that it came from a lab? Um, and I would say that there, there's some very powerful scientists who continue to uh, assert that they, they know that the overwhelming body of evidence points to a raccoon dog at the market. Uh, but I, I think that they are, they're losing ground. So you, you look at the public, most of the uh, polls now are saying that actually the majority, otherwise at least a sizable fraction of the public in different countries, all believe that this likely came from a lab. Matt, do you want to add to that? Yeah, just to say that, that it tends to oscillate in terms of how much one is allowed to believe that it's possible. Um, as Alina said, in the first uh, year, in most of 2020, if you even suggested that it might have come from a laboratory, you were um, told it was a conspiracy theory, that it was impossible, that the scientific consensus was against it, that you'd be censored. Uh, Facebook, for example, wouldn't allow any discussion of it. May 2021 was a breakthrough when a lot of those mainstream media backed off that position and said, actually, sorry, we're wrong. We do need to take this possibility into account. There was then a, a counterattack uh, during 2022, which was to some extent successful in saying, no, no, we have now sorted. It came from the market. It was raccoon dogs. That was based on very, very poor data. Um, but there was a, a, a genuine sense in much of the media that it was once again settled that it couldn't have come from a lab. Um, that has once again weakened in 2023. Um, so the te- it tends to come and go, this. It's not just linear. But uh, Alina's account is right. Very few people, particularly in the public, there's a huge gap now between what senior establishment scientists say, which is that it's very unlikely it came from a lab, and what the public thinks. Now, that ought to worry the senior establishment scientists. And how would you how would you describe your own views, both now and how have they changed over the last three years? Like, if you had to say, I think I saw that some scientists would sort of give a percentage what 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 they thought the probability was that it was a lab, what probability nature. What was that for you guys, say three years ago, and what is it today? I think we both entered the writing of this book um, very uncertain. 
and thinking that probably it was did not come from a lab or slightly more likely that it did not. By the time we'd finished writing the book, and particularly after the publication of the uh, diffuse proposal in 2021, uh, sorry, in 20, yeah, 2021, just as our book was coming out, um, I think we were strongly leaning towards the idea that it had come from a lab. I think now both Alina and I, but she, she should speak for herself, obviously, um, would say it's far more likely than not than it did come from a laboratory. Yes, I, I think the number of suspicious things have, have really racked up over the last three years. We know that this, this lab in Wuhan had a massive uh, treasure trove of SARS-like viruses. And the whole purpose of this was that they were trying to understand what was out there in the wild and could potentially cause a human outbreak. But when an actual human outbreak happened, they refused to share that data. Uh, not only that, but it had to come out slowly through internet sleuthing and people independently investigating, finding out that actually much of their work had been done at very low biosafety. And then this, this grant gets leaked. This grant from 2018 gets leaked in 2021, so after the pandemic, showing that just, just about a year and a half before this outbreak happened in Wuhan, these scientists were in the business of enhancing SARS-like viruses in the lab, or had plans to, had created a pipeline for doing this in 2018. So there's all this stuff that's racking up over the last three years that really have changed my mind on, on how uncertain I am about the lab leak. There are certainly many unknowns, like many unknowns regarding the earliest cases. We don't know those. Unknowns about the animals sold in that market, like how many and whether any were there at all in December 2019. Uh, unknowns about what was in the lab. But I'd say that now I, I lean towards the lab leak. And so just to sort of get into that a little bit more, can you describe what is it that exactly changed over that period of time? And what, what pieces of evidence emerged that had the biggest impact in moving you guys from zoonotic spillover to lab leak? Well, I would say it was uh, mainly finding out what was going on in that laboratory and finding out, uh, so it was two things. It was one, the strength of evidence emerging about what was happening in the laboratory and two, the weakness of the evidence linking the outbreak to the uh, seafood market. So the fact that they weren't able to find infected animals in that market to this day is really pretty extraordinary when you look, think when you see how, how hard they searched and how easy it was to find a chain of infection on farms and in uh, uh, markets uh, in previous occasions, including SARS. Uh, so the weakness of the market theory was a big part of it. And the fact that George Gao, the head of the Chinese CDC at the time, came out in May 2020 and said it did not start at that market. We're pretty sure. And he has stuck to that line ever since. And on the other hand, the, the growing evidence for the series of experiments that they were doing right up until 2019 in that laboratory, the low biosafety level at which they were doing it, um, and the extraordinary cover-up of details of that of those experiments, including, as Alina says, not releasing the database of the viruses they were working on, culminating in this defuse proposal, this grant application, where they um, suggested, in collaboration with the EcoHealth Alliance in the United States, that they would take novel coronaviruses collected from the wild and enhance them by adding a thing called a furin cleavage site, which is the one feature that this virus has and no other SARS-CoV-2 virus has. Uh, and that uh, has not turned up in any bat virus so far. There's a, so there's, a, I think a lot of people hear the the furin cleavage site 
mentioned. It seems like it's such an important part of the story. Can you explain what that is, why it's so important, and how the conversation about it has changed or the evidence around it has changed over the last few years? Uh, so the furin cleavage site is one of two features in this uh, coronavirus uh, that allows it to infect human cells and to be a highly transmissible uh, human pathogen. So without this furin cleavage site, this pandemic virus named SARS-CoV-2 would never have caused a pandemic. So this this feature is, is truly a unique feature in, in this virus. Of all the hundreds or at least dozens of other SARS-like viruses that have been characterized today, none of them possesses this furin cleavage site. And so the question is, did this furin cleavage site appear naturally, which is possible, or did it appear during the course of experimentation in the lab? And so this proposal from 2018 says that the scientists in Wuhan with U.S. partners were planning to put exactly this type of feature, furin cleavage sites, into novel, undescribed SARS-like viruses in their lab. So we don't know what viruses they had in their lab, but we do know that they had a pipeline for creating SARS-like viruses with furin cleavage sites. And at the end of 2019, there's exactly such a virus causing an outbreak in their city. Now, I believe that there was a, this was this proposal that you mentioned earlier. This was a proposal that I believe Eco Health Alliance gate put into DARPA, the defense or the, the Department of Defense's advanced research programs agency. And then I believe Peter Dozok, the head of Eco Health Alliance, said, "Well, it was never funded, so it didn't happen." End of story. Something to that effect. Um, so is that, is that is that their main defense? Is that really never happened? What is their defense, and how would you respond to it? I've seen several uh, lines of defense that they've made. So the first is that it wasn't funded, so the work wasn't done. But most scientists know that this is not true. So actually, when you write grants as a scientist, you usually tend to describe work that has started because you want to have some assurance that it will pay off, that you will get what you're looking for. And so you can tell your funders, look how successful we are. If you keep writing stuff that you've never started, having troubleshoot it, you, you, you will have a really high rate of failure. And the people giving you money will be like, these guys don't know what they're doing. They're always wasting our money. So most scientists write grants having done at least some of the work already. Uh, and so I think that that uh, argument that they say that they haven't done it, how do they know? Do they have, do they have the lab records at Wuhan? Do they know that the Wuhan partners did not go ahead without them? They, they certainly were not short on money. Like this was a premier lab in China receiving lots of grants. And so, and also, I believe there was a CBS News reported that there was also some double charging going on with these grants where there was money that they were receiving from two different government sources, two different funding sources, and but using for the same work. Can you describe what that is? And does that suggest that really money for, the, for this kind of research was fungible? that they may have been able to have been doing this even if they didn't receive that particular grant? I understand CBS News has, has backed off that uh, report, uh, uh, but I might be wrong about that. Um, there was a suspicion of it, but I don't think they've been able to, uh, I don't think they've stuck by that, that accusation. It's certainly true that the EcoHealth Alliance was receiving money from several different sources, uh, from uh, DARPA, uh, from the USAID and from the National Institutes of Health. And this was amounting in the, the last year before the pandemic to something like $17 million a year from the EcoHealth Alliance, a big chunk of which was going to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But as Alina says, that was only a small part of the Wuhan Institute of Virology's overall budget. 
most of which was coming from the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Um, so the funding for this work, you know, a, a lot of the work, a lot of the Eco Health Alliance funding would have gone into work in other labs as well, including Ralph Barrick's lab at the University of North Carolina. Some of it would have gone to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, whereas uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was mainly getting Chinese government funding for the work it was doing. Uh, and there's even a possibility that once the defuse proposal was turned down, this request for $14 million from DARPA to work on novel SARS like coronaviruses, uh, that the Chinese uh, uh, Academy of Sciences would have stepped up and said, okay, we'll fund it instead. And this way it won't have to happen in North Carolina. We'll do it in, in Wuhan instead. So, you know, it, the, the, the refusal may have made it more likely that it happened in Wuhan rather than um, uh, Chapel Hill. So I want to be very accurate on this. So I went to look up the audit that you're talking about, and this was done by the uh, HHS, the Human Health Services uh, Agency. So they found that uh, there were deficits in the oversight of the awards given to EcoHealth Alliance. So EcoHealth was unable to obtain scientific documentation from the Wuhan lab, uh, and they identified improper use of grant funds resulting in about $90,000 of unallowable costs. So um, I, I, think, I think what this says, and, and I, I don't think it's a rare problem in science actually, is that money gets moved around a lot amongst grants. So you're a lab and you receive like, let's say five to 10 different awards or grants from different places. Uh, and a lot of it goes into the same kind of mandate, the same umbrella of your lab, which is you're saying, I'm going to go out into the wild and I'm going to collect tens of thousands of bats and animal and human samples and bring it back to do virus research. So how are you going to divide those 10,000 samples per award? Normally you just pour everything, all the money into common pools and you use that to hire people, to train people, to get equipment and to go on these field trips. So it's very hard to separate projects from each other by funding. We're, we're, I, I have to confess, I, I feel like I've read about, I, I read it all this, and I, but I find myself continuing to be baffled that this research is still going on. We just read the new book by the USA Today reporter. I'm blanking on her name. Allison, Allison Young. Allison Young. Um, I found it terrifying. And it just seems like it seems like the preponderance of opinion was that we should not allow these experiments to occur. President Obama is somebody who, as a very good politician, seems like he read the consensus to ban it. It then kept going. And now it appears that it's continuing to happen. And I, I guess I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> Are we really still doing this research around the world? And if so, why is that? And what should happen? And what is the state of the debate about this continuing research? Because it's sort of bizarre to think that we just had a pandemic because of it. And yet we're still doing the same thing that may have caused it. Yeah. So just as uh, Anthony Fauci was stepping down from his role as director of the NIAID, that agency gave the EcoHealth Alliance another new multi-million dollar grant to do more of this virus hunting research to send these viruses up into the US this time to study in labs. So I do think that lessons have not been learned. Uh, I have not seen any explanation of how transparency or accountability has been improved. I haven't even seen explanations of how the biosafety might be improved. So I think on the one hand, you, you could say that 
it's almost kind of racist to assume that accidents may only happen in China. Like this, this only happened because the research was done in China. But if we do it in the U.S., it will be fine. I think. I think that that that's that's poorly advised. I think. I think the situation where you are bringing all these viruses up into labs, no matter how high the biosafety of the lab is, let's say it's in the middle of Boston or in the middle of North Carolina, all you're waiting for is one of those technicians to have a bad day. And scientists are, are people. Scientists are people. We're not saints. We are, we're not, you know, trained to endure like uh, extreme conditions or things like that. That the, the days when people might be careless or have something on their mind, and then an accident happens, even if you're in high biosafety. And so, this book by Alison Young describes so many of these incidents where, at the highest level of biosafety, the highest level of training, with the most like expert leaders, accidents do happen. And so. My question is why why is this research still being done in urban centers where, where the scientists can take off their you know protective gear and go home and go to the nearest pub or coffee shop so i think this is a risk that is not acceptable to the public so i, I want to say this too for for the vast majority of scientists this concept of biosafety is just about protecting yourself and the people who are in the lab, in the immediate lab. But for this very small number of scientists, I think can be counted in dozens of scientists around the world, biosafety is what prevents an accident in their lab from causing a global pandemic, civilization ending, like billions of people having to think about public health policy and, and vaccines. Uh, so I think that for, for this very specialized group of people, there should be a different set of rules than, than the rest of the scientists. So. This, they're even a minority in the field of virology. So even amongst virologists, most of them are doing work that could never cause a pandemic. So it's just a very small subset of people who need more oversight. So it's dis disappointing to see that the funding is still going without any explanation to the public of how it's going to protect them. Yeah, I, I'd just um, like to, to emphasize that point because um, uh, if we were to conclude from this episode, that we must stop all biotechnology, uh, it would be a disaster. It would be a disaster for agriculture as well as medicine. Um, it would prevent us doing all sorts of beneficial experiments to, that are, are going to result in cures for cancer and all sorts of other things. And that's true even if we were to say, let's do no more gain-of-function research, because gain-of-function includes you know, putting an omega-3 um, gene into a cabbage so that it's healthier for people to eat. That's a gain of function by the cabbage. Um, uh, so, But nobody thinks that's dangerous. So we've got to be very careful here that we specifically talk about the particular very small category of gain-of-function research adding features to pandemic potential viruses that makes them more dangerous, that makes them better at infecting human beings. Um, uh, and that's, as Alina says, a very small sex section of um, virology, let alone biotechnology. And it's a section that in many cases is doing experiments that whose results can be got by safer means. This is the point that Mark Lipsitch makes, is that um, it, it, it's... Most of the experiments, most of the results that you get from making a live virus with a new feature in it, like a furin cleavage site, could be got by working on the same genes in a bacterium or in a pseudovirus, that is to say a virus that can't 
breed and can't infect effectively. Um, uh, and so there are safer alternatives to get to the same information. Um, and that's why this is only a very small corner of science. This is not about... And, and that's why it's so crazy of so many scientists to allow themselves to, to, to be put in the same category as this one dangerous corner of science. And you know, I've covered biology and biotechnology as a journalist, as an author, for 50 years. I was gobsmacked to find out that these experiments were going on. I just didn't think we were doing anything this dangerous. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.